Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Henry the Third. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome uh, to another Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And here we are at Henry III. We are so nearly at your beloved uh, Edward I. In fact, he will make a, quite a strong appearance yeah, in this episode. he's a bit of a legend, Graham. You must be pleased. I am very happy. This is a good day. <laughs> in two weeks you won't be doing this anymore. Yeah, yeah I'll retire. Won't be time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so last time uh, we did King John, this time we're doing Henry III, but before we get on to Henry... Uh, we had some messages from people. Ah, uh, yeah, we have. We've got a tweet. Follow us, at Rex Factor Pod. Uh, Jenny Mirabilis, about John, whether he was all bad, says, Alison Weir argues not. He was a gifted administrator who showed a concern for justice and ruled energetically enough. But it wasn't enough, really, at the end not of the day. Not quite enough. He didn't get the Rex Factor. But he got a bit of recognition for... Being so awful. Being so awful and doing a bit of administrative yeah. stuff. Yeah. We uh, resurrected him. Or he, though he wasn't denied him his legendary status for being as awful. Yeah, as he wasn't awful thing. enough. That's, yeah. That was the trouble. Uh, we've also had an email, rexactpodcast at hotmail.com. This is from Cat Fitzpatrick, who says, Hello, uh, I just wanted to say good work. Uh, I'm really enjoying the latest ones where I already knew a bit about them. I think the earlier ones where you're talking about kings that I've never heard of were fascinating. Go Saxons. Yeah, you see, I didn't know anything about them either. <laughs> Being a Lancastrian, I'm looking forward to the War of the Roses, but also because the action seemed to be play- taking place in the South. I wonder whether there'd have been as much of an impact on normal people farming in Yorkshire, for example, with all these kings charging about laying siege to castles and arguing with the Pope. I thought Richard the Lionheart was particularly interesting, as if you'd have asked me beforehand, I'd have definitely given the Rex Factor, probably just for his name alone, very good point, but I was, I was in quite a conundrum after finding out that he didn't really give a monkeys for England at all, and was daft enough to watch somebody shoot him, <laughs> and get another excellent point. <laughs> I tried to find out why eating lampreys would have killed Henry I, looks like it was just food poisoning, but I found out that he wasn't the only king to have died after overindulging at dinner. Alf- Adolf Frederick, King of Sweden died after eating a meal of lobster, caviar, sauerkraut, kippers and champagne and 14 <laughs> helpings of dessert. That's the way to go. All the best cat. Blimey. Well, you would just put on research. Yeah, good research. Thank you very yeah. much for your email. Will Henry III get the Rax Factor? I've got high hopes. Inspire. But this Henry happened before. Email. It's gone up, it's gone down. It's gone down. Who's to say how it will turn out? So Henry III, he was born in 1207, the son of King John and Isabel of Angoulême. And he becomes king in 1216, so he's only nine years old when he becomes king. And he's the first boy king since Ethelred the Unready. Oh, that, that lot. There's mm, loads of them. Back to the yeah. Saxons. And he's the 20th great-grandfather of Elizabeth II. Okay. No contemporary um, descriptions of what he looked like, but apparently he was about five foot six. So he's quite similar in height to John. That's very short, isn't it? So he takes over where John had signed the Magna Carta in 1215, but then reneged on the deal and tried to enforce his will on the barons again. So we have the first barons' war, whereby the country's sort of being torn apart by civil war. The barons invite Prince Louis, the son of Philip of France, over. And when John dies in 1216, basically... Louis controls much of the southeast, ports as such as London and Southampton. He's got the support of all the major barons, most of the major barons, I should say, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. Central authority is declining, so the northern 
barons who've been unhappy at the treatment of John. They're sort of ruling independently. The South is kind of French. There's a little bit of a free-for-all, danger of it slipping to how it was with Stephen and the anarchy. Yeah. And what's more, we've got a boy king. And we remember we had Edwig, Edward the Martyr, Ethelred the Unready. None of those reigns really turned out very well no. for the Saxons. So a boy king, a minority, can be disastrous. But? But, cometh the man, cometh the hour. Maybe it's the other way around. Cometh the yes, cometh the hour, cometh the man. William Marshall is the man who steps to the fore yeah. at this point. This is a, should be a legendary heroic figure in English history, but seems largely to have been quite forgotten. Yeah, uh, I'd say that's fair. Yeah, but he'd had, uh, his background, he'd had a chivalric career, so he'd been captured in France 1168 when he was about 20, but ransomed by our old friend Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, who'd heard about his stories of bravery. He made his fame and fortune by competing in tournaments, um, which weren't just the sort of showy-off, jousty things of Tudor age, but proper fighting and dangerous mm. stuff. He claimed to have unhorsed 500 men in his career. Just quite a large number. So he wasn't a noble chap, he just made his name... He was a minor noble, oh, okay. but he made his name yeah. through the tournaments. He then served uh, the young Henry, who was the oldest son of Henry II, uh, from 1170, appointed to his household, was with him when he died in 1183. Then serves Henry II, uh, where he came to favour, was appointed the marshal, so he was sort of head of king's security. Right. When Richard uh, I was rebelling against Henry, if we remember, at the end of the reign in 1189, William Marshall stayed loyal to Henry while others was deserting him. And then when Richard was chasing after them at one point, carelessly as ever, William Marshall unhorsed Richard, the only man ever to do so, and then could have killed him, and instead he killed his horse. It sounds a bit cruel, actually, but it was to make a point no, where like, I yeah, could have got you, yes. I could have had you, but... He's the only guy to have unhorsed... The only guy to do it. Richard the Lionheart, who, let's remember, was a legendary warrior. <laughs> yes. And yeah. William Marshall unhorses him and kills his horse just to prove a point. Yeah. Wow. Then Richard takes him on, because he sees he's a great knight. He's part of the regency for Richard when he goes off in the Crusades. And he then serves John. But he falls out with John, like many of the nobles, because he paid Philip II homage for his lands in Normandy. And John was very cross about this and insulted him, attacked his Irish lands. But nevertheless, Marshall stays loyal through the First Baron's War and is there with him, takes responsibility for his funeral, and is then presented with the obligation of John's last request to take Kintyre, be the guardian of the country, and save Henry III from Prince Louis. Wow, this guy sounds amazing. Pretty reluctant. He's approaching 70 at this point, <laughs> so he's a pretty old man. But he's got a reputation for loyalty and warfare. And he also resists the chance to take um, advantage of the situation like many others do in the minority. He doesn't go out all for his power. Instead, he looks for consensus, wants to have common consent that he's the man to take on the guardianship of the country and of the king. Yeah. But he's also worried whether it's actually even possible to do it. He thought it was a near impossible task, but he's said to have been swayed by the sight of the helpless little child and honour set in, and also the calculation that he thought it was possible. Yeah, right, but he yeah. said that he was embarking on a sea without bottom or shore, but that he would have carried Henry on his shoulders from country to country and wouldn't abandon him, even if he had to beg for his bread. So we've got a champion. Yeah, we've got Henry. a bit of a... We've got a this, you see, that's what I thought Richard Lionheart would have been like. Mm. Mm, not so. But it was all the fighty without any of the... Yeah, without any nice bits. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some good prospects for Henry III. He's got William Marshall inside, and that wins a lot of support... Uh, from the nobles. He's got the support of other powerful men. We've got Hubert de Burr, who's a justicia, who was holding out at Dover Castle and keeping Prince Louis out there. And also Peter de Roche, who is Bishop of Winchester. 
Crucially, they also have papal support. So the Pope supports the Royalists rather than the French. But the Pope loved the French, didn't he? Well, he loved them a little bit, but um, England was now a fiefdom of the Pope. Oh, right, because John sold it. John had sold it. So the papal legate, a man called Guala, who went running around, well, riding around in red robes on a white horse, shouting orders and looking amazing. Regal, yeah. Being regal. uh, Made it a cause for sort of holy war by excommunicating Prince Louis, which meant that nobody could crown Louis. So he was already at a disadvantage. And also, the personal dispute, really, for the barons was with John, rather than with the whole idea of a monarchy and the... Uh, Plantagenet. So once John was dead, it was possible for them to think there was a chance of actually supporting the next son, yeah. rather than abandoning them completely. So they come to battle. Um, at the Battle of Lincoln, Louis had split his forces between Lincoln and Dover, thanks to the siege that was being held out by Dover. And Dover still didn't fall? Still didn't fall. So William Marshall took the initiative, got all the royalist forces together, stormed off to Lincoln, and won a brilliant victory, took loads of prisoners, completely beat the French and Louis was forced to abandon his siege of Dover and look for reinforcements to come over from France. Then, the Battle of Dover, or Sandwich, it seems to be a bit of two, but it Dover was a, sounds better. a naval battle, it does actually, yes. <laughs> a naval assault where the French reinforcements were coming over. Hubert de Burr, having survived the siege, takes the English fleet out. French think they're running off to Calais, but what they do is they spin around, wind now behind them, oh, going into the cool. ports slam into them and win another great victory. Uh, French forces completely ruined and Louis is forced to sue for peace. And then the Treaty of Kingston with William Marshall gives him fairly liberal treatment and a good bribe to send him home and he renounces his claim to the throne. Henry III saved. Job done. Job. Wow. Very much done. I mean, I suppose it's not Henry III, but it's it's all his reign, which again sounds like, reads like a movie script. Yeah, it does. So, unfortunately... As we said, William Marshall was an old man. 1219, um, a few years later, he realises that he's, he's ill and he's dying and he needs to retire, in effect. So he brings all the barons together to establish what the arrangements are going to be for the regency once he's stepped down. Uh, he doesn't trust them, he fears a lack of unity, as he said, because there are no people in any land like those in England where each person has his own opinion. So what he decides to do, rather than give another baron the regency... He'll put it in the hands of uh, the papal legate. So the Pope, in effect, is protecting oh, yeah. Henry III. Um, so then when he dies, he fulfills an oath he made many years ago. He took the cross, Eye of the Templar Knights, that became a Templar, and then was buried in the round church of the London Temple, the Church of the Templars uh, yeah. in London. And on his death, Philip II said, The Marshal was truly the most loyal man I ever knew in any place where I have been. And Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said, The greatest knight that ever lived. Blimey. And one more little fact about William Marshall before we move on. Do you remember when we did Stephen and there was that story where um, he was besieging a castle where the Lord had said that he would surrender it to Stephen, but then he didn't. And Stephen had got his son as a hostage. So he said, if you don't do this, Mm. then I'll kill your son. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. Mm. That child was William Marshall. Really? 1252, Stephen... In this position where anybody else probably would have killed this little boy as a hostage, Stephen thinks, no, can't bring myself to do it, lets him off, and he grows up to be the so great now, hero. What are, are we saying, maybe, mm. that Stephen's influence showing this mercy yes. ultimately helped Richard uh, Henry III? Save the country. We should go back oh, and uh, give Stephen some credit. No, we shouldn't. He was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but in this one act of mercy... Yeah. He saved the country. That is, that's cool. That's proper little nugget of history fact. Great story. Brilliant. So, 
from the minority now of Henry to the majority. France, we see a lot of changes. So in 1223, Philip II, the old uh, problem maker in France for England, he dies. Wee. Louis VIII, who was Prince Louis, takes over from him. Um, 1224, he conquers uh, Poitou. And then Hugh de Lusignan, an ally of his, conquers Gascony in 1224. That's the last sort of English territory in France. 1225, the English take it back, and Gascony stays English until 1453. That's really quite recent, though. I know, we're really getting soon. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, soon. See, we're talking about 700. And then Louis VIII dies in 1226, so he's replaced by a boy king again, Louis IX. So France, a little mm. bit vulnerable, potentially, All at this stage. Now. In England... Uh, William de Burr and Peter de Roche um, are the sort of two men competing to be, in effect, regent. So the papal legate stuff doesn't really work out. Right. Both of them have quite a lot of power. We see Magna Carta reintroduced and also uh, a thing called Charter of the Forest, which is a thing which provided rights of access to the forests for free men, which gave them economic protection and access to fuel, stuff okay. like this. And there's a sense in which the minority is ruled by this sort of consensus agreement. So all the barons sort of deciding things between themselves a little bit more. Oh, it's birthing, birth of a little parliament, maybe. Birth of a little ideas of parliament. Ideas of parliament. So this, but this was um, Henry III passing these acts that they've come to him. Yeah, so he's, he's in his minority. He enters the majority then in 1227. Right. Still under the influence of um, de Burr and de Roche, but in 1232, de Burr sort of falls from grace, and then 1234, de Roche falls from grace. So from 1236 onwards, Henry is now taking personal control. And from the point of where he joined, the minority has been successful enough that he's now able to be completely powerful and rule as a monarch again, whereas John has sort of been on the verge of being kicked out yeah. by his barons. And now Henry III... He's turned it round. It's been turned around, largely for him rather than by him, but nevertheless, mm. he's now able to take control. Yeah. And that's... All right, well, I'm going to start really thinking about my scores from this point then. Yeah. So... He takes full control, um, but as we said, Magna Carta, rule of consent, the magnates are expecting a bit more of a say in government, whereas Henry III is thinking, right, I'm king, I'm going to do whatever mm. the hell I want. So there's a lot of tension in the next 20 years, which ultimately leads to more rebellion. Yeah. So some of Henry's issues in foreign affairs, he tries to recover lost lands in France, but he never really managed to make any headway, and as always, it's quite an expensive process. He makes an alliance with Alfonso of Castile, who wanted to go off to crusade in North Africa. And although Henry took the cross and was raising lots of money to do it, he never actually goes. Is it a big ruse? Is that scandal? Well, it's not really scandal. He sort of intended to, but as like many things, he had a big idea but wasn't really able to it's never the right time. see it through. No. Also sees problems in Scotland and Wales, some troublesome rebellions in the 1150s. But the big thing, the reason he doesn't go on crusades, is he spends all his money trying to have his second son, Edmund, named King of Sicily. Sicily? Sic at the time, very wealthy kingdom, and it sort of included the south of Italy as well, right. so it wasn't just the island. Okay. But he thought, this would be great, I'll get lots of power over there, have my son installed. And he had papal support to do it, but this meant that he had to pay a huge debt, so he had an annual tribute to the Pope, plus um, payment of 134... 1,541 marks of silver. 134,000? Yeah, within 18 months on pain of execution. So that's almost as much as they had to pay the ransom for Richard um, when he was captured. That's shocking. Huge amount of money, and it seemed very costly and just being a selfish act which doesn't really benefit anybody so apart from him. Yeah, like the English taxes yeah. to just 
have his son. Call his son. Yeah, and he doesn't manage it either. Bad investment. Very bad investment. He also then marries, uh, in 1236, a woman called Ellen of Provence, who proves very unpopular with the English, and particularly the nobles, not least because she brings with her lots of, sort of foreign noblemen who become installed at court and Henry's favourites, and then they start to take up some of the key positions of uh, government, not the English nobles. Taking our jobs. Indeed, <laughs> exactly. And as you said, lots of economic pressure. So um, he also had an endowment of Edward in 1254 with an annual sort of fee of £6,000 a year, as well as the Sicilian costs, as well as the Gascony costs, which are said to have been about £8,900, all of his gold treasure spent failing to recapture um, lands yeah. in France and additional money as well. And also Eleanor of Provence was also someone who took in a lot of debt, spending lots of money on clothes and jewellery. And when he died, apparently she was about £20,000 in debt. Wow. It's just his wife. That's heavy. But all of this is made much worse by the fact that it's an authoritarian rule in a way which was normal for previous kings, but not acceptable to yeah, the nobles now. now yeah. So after the long minority as well, he had a poor political education, never really able to judge what were good things to do, what was practical, what he could achieve, and how to manage his nobles. Yeah. And he tended to rely on foreigners. So he resisted any of their demands for key roles like the justicia and chancellor to be public appointments rather than just his own will. And gradually we start to see himself overreaching, building up debt, failing to make ground in his wars. And along comes a chap called Simon de Montfort. Uh-oh, yes, now, more familiar with him. Frenchman, um, but came over to be Earl of uh, Leicester. Actually, he, sorry, he was one of Eleanor's then? Uh, not one of Eleanor's. Oh, no, they, they were sort of friends. I'm oh, not sure okay. if she brought him over, but mm. he was originally from France. Um, initially sort of... Gone on okay with Henry, married his wife, not his wife. <laughs> Gone really well. <laughs> That's a very different arrangement. Married his sister, who was also called Eleanor. Ah. So maybe it was confusing. Probably just for me. Um, but they gradually fell out and came to blows. Henry tried to have him tried for poor governance in Gascony, um, but failed. And de Montfort believes that he needed to curb royal pretensions and ensure that there was consultation in government. So de Montfort's starting to build this idea of a more democratic, yeah. in inverted commas, system of government. So, following the minority, and people liking that, they're not happy with things now. So in 1258, when the Sicilian business has really failed and all the debt's coming up, he's just had enough. Everyone's had enough. So they march, led by de Montfort on Westminster, demand the expulsion of all the sort of foreigners, protest against various ills that had been against them, and force Henry to submit to the provisions of Oxford. This is in a sense, almost a birth of Parliament. So we see power removed from the king and put in the hands of a 24-member council. So we have 12 men chosen by the barons, 12 men chosen by the king. This is what I was thinking of, mm. at the birth of Parliament, yeah. And then the council would select two men to oversee all the decisions, whereby Parliament would meet three times a year to sort of performance manage um, the council and check how it was doing. So essentially we've got these councils that are governing the kingdom, and Henry is almost just a figurehead. He's not really... So where, where did they envisage his role in the... Well, esen the essentially, he was just more of a figurehead. He's sort of... It's, it's almost like... Almost like the Georgians, I suppose. Oh, or maybe... Or Stuarts, whereby you've got a king who's got sort of powers and he's involved in government, but he's by no means... That's really, really forward-thinking. Very forward-thinking, and they make Henry swear an oath on the Gospels to... Um, uphold this agreement. And, what, and he's forced to because he's just 
a bit in the, he's they've in the just, minority. They've all marched on him, and he's in effect he's not a prisoner, but he hasn't really got much freedom mm. here. So as you said, David Starkey uh, said no other European country had tried such an audacious governmental experiment, and no other king had been subject to such humiliation. He's not doing well. Not doing well at all. But he then uh, is a wily character, Henry III, and he sets about re-establishing himself. So 1259-60, he absents himself in France, so he's sort of physically separate from the council, and they can't exert as much control over him. And what he does is, in 1259, there's a Treaty of Paris whereby he gives up all his claims to French territories and just keeps Gascony, which isn't very much fun for him, but it wins him the support of the French king, Louis IX. He also gets papal support. So in 1261, Pope Alexander IV absolves him of his oath to uphold the provisions of Oxford. So in effect, he now says, you're free to do whatever you want. You're not holed by this oath anymore. And he also seeks to divide and rule for the nobility. So he conciliates de Montfort and some of his personal grievances. And he also breaks their unity. So he accepted, for example, that the nobles would act on their own behalf in sort of emergency situations, but the king would decide things like when Parliament should be held. So some of them thought, OK, that sounds fair enough. Where's de Montfort? was like, no, 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 Parliament decides everything. So he's gradually splitting them. And then after 1261, they really see that things are in trouble because the Pope has now effectively said, yeah, I, none of this is um, legitimate. You can do what you want. Trouble. And then de Montfort uh, has a Parliament um, administration in 1263, which breaks down in October, and effectively ends the regime. And at this point, Prince Edward comes to the fore. Yes! Henry's oldest son uh, seizes the initiative by claiming that he's going to Windsor to visit his wife, but in fact seizes the castle and encourages the desertion of lots of men to the royalist cause. So they're now they're setting up for a fight. They're going to take de Montfort down. See, that's the kind of action we're going to see next week. Indeed. Well, we're going to see some of it this <laughs> week as well. Um, before it comes to blows, however, they go to Louis IX of France and ask him to arbitrate on the case because they see seen as a fair and reasonable judge of things. So he's going to look at all the evidence and say, who's right, who's wrong? Should Henry submit to them? Should they submit to Henry? What's going on? Now, as you remember, Henry III has now sort of won his support rather well. And also he sees that it's not very good for a king to say, yes, you can take away the power of the king and rule democratically yeah. as a parliament so the Mies of Amiens in uh, 1264 he basically complete whitewash and says that everything should return to how it was before 1258 i.e. Henry's right parliament's wrong he would say that indeed he would <laughs> barons didn't see that coming but they refused to accept the judgement and we now come to open war and at this point the second barons war uh, Henry seems to be in the ascendancy. He's got the support of France, he's got the support of the Pope, he's got his brother Richard of Cornwall and Prince Edward with him, so he's got huge military strength and international backing, and he takes on de Montfort. And at the Battle of Lewis in 1264, they come to blows. And it's disaster for Henry III. Largely, it must be said, we might point the finger of blame at Edward. He was young. <laughs> he was young. <laughs> this is how he learns how good he is. De Montfort's outnumbered. Um, Edward has initially a good result um, on one flank against the people of London, but he pursues them off the battlefield. Oh, 1066. Goes off after them, leaves Henry and Richard of Cornwall um, to fight on. They get defeated. Edward turns back. It's like, oh, where's everybody gone? <laughs> Everyone gets captured. So Richard of Cornwall gets caught in a windmill... Henry and Edward surrender in the Priory, and de Montfort now really has got complete control. They're under his um, custody. 
De Montfort is king in all but name. Edward's taken as well, isn't he? Edward's taken as well. Yeah. Everyone's under his control. Disaster at this point, and we come almost to the point of republicanism here. However, De Montfort starts to lose his support. He tries to summon another great parliament, so he has knights and representatives from all the counties and boroughs, elected representatives, he insists upon. Well, really is getting yeah. democratic, again, inverted commas. Vote granted to all those owning a freehold of land to the annual rent of 40 shillings. But he holds so much power, and he starts to use his sort of powers of patronage, so his sons start to get powerful yeah, positions. Yeah, it always happens, doesn't it? His family it starts to get good things, his... Um, and also the nobles, who in 1258 had sort of been united together and working towards this, they're now much more divided, much less willing to accept what's going on. And for de Montfort to try to make it work, he has to be fairly authoritarian. Mm. So he loses a lot of support. And for him, the disaster comes when Prince Edward makes his escape from yes, custody. Here, here he goes. So uh, he's under custody, but he's given a bit of freedom of movement, so he's allowed to walk about, but under sort of guard. Uh, and he arranges to try out some horses in Hartford with uh, a powerful family. And they try out all the horses, and then when he comes to try out the last fresh one, just gallops off, makes away with it. That's so clever. It's very clever, and I, essentially I can imagine Henry, um, not Henry, uh, Simon de Montfort sort of there watching on, and going, ha, he'll be back. <laughs> Don't think he is coming back, no. no. <laughs> yeah, but that's brilliant. I, taking the opportunity, I would have paid it out on the horse, but forward planning. Very good forward planning, ties out all the other ones. So he runs off, links up with some other powerful families, and then sets himself up as the figurehead for the royal recovery. So now we're getting back to the point where there's going to be battle, and Edward, very much on the front foot, links up with the Welsh uh, marchers, which is a difficult area for Mm. De Montfort, sees control of them, musters support of powerful barons, captures Bristol, Cheshire, Shrewsbury, Ludlow, Worcester, Gloucester, whole line of the seven, basically, gets them all under his control. Legend. De Montfort isn't really able to react quickly enough. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Then at Kenilworth, Simon de Montfort's younger son, also called Simon, um, he had his men camped out outside the town walls. So they're in the town, but outside of the walls, just sleeping, having a good time. Edward hears about this, marches 34 miles from Worcester, pretty sharpishly, comes upon them when they're pretty much sleeping. Many of them managed to get inside the walls, including the de Montfort. Many others killed or captured. And, yeah, so the son is trapped and besieged there. Excellent. She was on the other foot. And meanwhile, Henry is still captured. Henry's still under de Montfort's uh, custody. Mm. So Simon de Montfort, the elder, um, aims to link up with his son after Edward um, gives mm. up on Kenilworth. So they're trying to link up. But again, Edward finds out about this and intercepts de Montfort at Evesham surprises him by raising banners that he captured from the younger de Montfort at Kenilworth so that he thinks, oh, it's my son coming. Oh, no, it's not. It's brilliant. Prince Edward. It's brilliant. Hugely outnumbered at Evesham, Simon de Montfort. His forces are completely destroyed, and he, as long as one of his sons and many major figures, is killed. And indeed, de Montfort himself is brutally mut- mutilated by yeah. uh, Edward and the Knights. By his knights, or... Uh, I don't know if Edward was very much involved, but not a man prone to great acts of mercy. (laughs) No. Uh, But that is then it. The uh, De Montfort's forces completely destroyed as an absolute victory for uh, Prince Edward, and Henry III, of course, is released back on the throne. 
Yeah, I'd have kept him there. <laughs> it <laughs> sounds <laughs> rubbish. <laughs> in his later years, he sort of largely retires from active government, busies himself with the arts and venerating the cult of Edward the Confessor. Prince Edward comes to dominate a bit more, and then in 1270 goes off on the Crusades. Mm. Then two years later, in 1272, aged 65, Henry III dies in a strange way, at the height of his powers. Again, he was helped all the way, wasn't he? Helped all the way by others, and yet, somehow, he manages to emerge... On top of the pile. On top of the yeah. pile. Anyway, that's the life of Henry III. Quite a long one, but as we see, that is quite a long reign. Mm. So, we now come to do the reviews. We that's give a huge reign. Huge Sorry, reign. I've just this. Heard yeah. <laughs> yeah. the date suddenly. The date suddenly. Yeah, I did some <laughs> rudimentary maths in my head. As you so, we'll each give a score out of ten for battliness, sub- uh, scandal and subjectivity, whether we want to be a subject. Subjects. And also how long they ruled for, which is a long time, as we just said, and how many children they had dynasty, before deciding whether they have... The legacy, the great achievement, the star factor, which we call the Rex Factor. But first, Battleiness! It's a funny one, really, because actually this is a brilliant period for Battleiness. Probably the best one that we've had. Yeah, oh, definitely. And it's for medieval battles. If you were to make a film, I know I keep using this as a <laughs> reference, but you'd instantly recognise it. All the armour, the siege engines, it'd be brilliant. And it's actually open battles, which we've yeah. seen very little of since yeah. 1066. So some of the good examples, we had the Battle of Lincoln in 1217, which was William, de, uh, William the Marshal, where Louis' forces had declined battle and they continued sort of to try and siege Lincoln within the castle walls. But uh, the Bishop of Winchester discovers a gateway that could be opened. That <laughs> it's a bit of weakness. Yeah, indeed. So they launched a dummy assault at one place, where whilst at the other end they opened the gates, and William Marshall and the others storm in round the back. Brilliant. And apparently Marshall, it said, arrived with such force that he plunged three lances deep into the press of the men, and the Bishop of Winchester behind him shouting over and over again in a high-pitched voice, God helps the Marshal! That's cool. It's, I, mean, I mean, terrible. Yeah. Really, murder and all that. The French. But, yeah. Then at the Battle of Dover, stroke sandwich, and the naval battle... Um, when they come from behind to yeah. capture the French forces, uh, there was a cog which fell apparently from the uh, sails and crashed down onto pots full of lime. So these lime clouds burst out and sort of temporarily blinded the French sailors so they weren't able to get away. And then when they got on board, captured uh, the French leader called Eustace the Monk, who had betrayed John in the, earlier in the reign, and so they gave him the option of which side of the boat he wanted to be beheaded on. It's not, I mean, that, what, a, what a concession. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Also, of course, in 1225, as we said, the um, English managed to recover Gascony after losing it the previous year. And at the Battle of Evesham, of course, Prince Edward 1265. Brilliant all-out victory against Simon de Montfort. These are very good points. Very good battles. But, you know, it's other people. That is the problem. And as we see, when Henry III is in charge... It's not so successful. So when he tried to do things in France in 1230, when Louis IX was very young and there was a real vulnerability to France, takes an army there that never actually makes an attack. Could have tried for Normandy, but a bit of caution, a bit too slow, meant he never able to make any impact. Later, 1242, Second Battle of uh, Tyleburg, or mm. Tyleburg, French cavalry charge routed the English forces. Henry III forced the Scarpa back to England. And then, of course, 1259, the Treaty of Paris, he resigns his claims to Normandy, Anjou, Touraine, Maine and Poitou, and Gascony is a fiefdom, so in effect he's 
a vassal. Of that was to Knights. that was to get his um, some French support from the French. It was, and it was successful. But at the same time, he's losing ground. Yeah. He isn't doing very well. Battle of Lewis in twelve sixty four. So this is the one where De Montfort captures Henry the Third yeah. and Edward. Yeah. Um, he'd had his troops sort of by the downs. So De Montfort looking down on the whole battle, attacking downhill. Edward had had the success, but when Edward is off the field, and it's left to Henry to do some work, yeah, it goes to pieces. It goes to pieces, and they get. Uh, Defeated, then he gets captured. I tell you what, I think William Marshall would be would he'd, he'd be very <laughs> glad he didn't live to see that. <laughs> he'd be very disappointed. <laughs> he would have been very disappointed in him. And then the Battle of Esham, where Edward has the great victory over Simon de Montfort. Henry, of course, he's on the battlefield, but as a prisoner of de Montfort. <laughs> so the fighting yeah. is going on, and as it gets closer and closer to de Montfort, Henry is essentially just sort of <laughs> yeah, yeah. having literally having to shout at people, "Don't kill me, I'm the king." Yeah. He's genuinely in he's danger of being in killed the, in the thick of it on the wrong side. So, I mean, that's... Oh, that's not what you want from the king. Really a bit rubbish. And it said his qualities, he had no military ability, hated campaigning, hated tournaments, and a Poitavin satirist of the time said, White bread, chambers and tapestries, to ride like a dean on a docile mount. The king likes better all that than to put on a coat of mail. That's a good point. I mean, that's, that's Henry III. Not me. a man of battle. However, as you said... He is a good political strategist, so mm. things like the Treaty of Paris, although he doesn't do it by war, he gets that sort of international support behind him, French the Pope, which means that he is able to recover his position. And he does rely on others, but at the same time he's able to use others to meet his ends, where someone like John mm. alienated yeah. everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas Henry III manages to achieve things somehow. Yeah, and we need to, we need to appreciate that, because we've got to un, you know, understand that in the future... You're not going to have these battle-hardened kings and queens, mm. so you've got to you know, appreciate them for success, however it comes about. However, <laughs> it's not really that good compared to some other political schemers. Indeed. So it's just, just you know, because he's not very good at war, and he's standard at the political side <laughs> of things, so it doesn't make up for it, I don't think. No, so how are we going to score him then? Lots of great battles, but none of them no, to Henry's him. credit. I... I'm going to score him very badly here because if we did one on William Marshall, he'd get a lot of points here. He would. And Edward's going to get a lot of points next week for this. Yeah. But he, Henry III, oh, bad. Really bad. Mm. Really bad news. Um, good victories, none of them his. When he is in charge, he doesn't have any. Yeah. So, three for being on, on the field. Yeah, <laughs> even if he wasn't actually in charge of his own troops, he could say I was there. He'd, he'd have got the the Cub Scout badge, but mm. he, he knew. Mm. I'm I'm giving him a three as well. I think I would have gone down to something like a one, but I think he sort of he almost deserves some vague credit for the fact that he had good men. Yeah, he supporting knew he him, him, so he was able to get the men he needed to do it. Yeah. But any time he is involved, it's a disaster. Mm. When he's not, it's is better. Yeah, because it's a balance, isn't it? Because we don't know, I mean, unless every single sword stroke is by them, we've got to allow yeah. them some delegation, <laughs> but really, that's too much, Henry. So that's a mere six out of ten for battleiness and not a good start. Scandal. So, um, we had a quote, actually, from uh, History of England, um, not a quote, a tweet, rather, from David Crowther, who's another chap who does um, history podcasts, sent some very nice messages to support, which we're very grateful for, but he also asked... Should there be more points for less scandal? So he's always wondering why, when people do lots of bad things, they're, they're getting, getting lots, lots of points. points. Well, we've had this chat before. Mm. I remember um, this, and we, 
it's kind of balanced out by the fact we've then got subjectivity. So that's almost not... I can see how it's not um, exactly the opposite, but if, if you have good subjectivity, you're mm. going to score highly. So it's yeah. not like you're only rewarding the evils. <laughs> we don't just give points for immorality. There yeah. is room yeah. for goodness as well. Uh, but that's what you want from a rounded bit of fun from history. You want some entertaining yeah, stuff as well as some you want inspiring good stuff. stuff. Juicy stuff you want. Yeah, it works. So, for what we've got for Scandal, Eleanor of Brittany. Mm-hmm. Um, this was Henry's older cousin. She was the sister of Arthur of Brittany, who, if you remember, John had murdered. If not by his own hand, then certainly he'd arranged for oh, it. Oh, yeah. Who was he? was the rival to the throne. Because he was the son of John's older brother. Yeah, right. Who had yeah. died. yeah. Before, so technically, Eleanor of Brittany has a better claim to the throne than Henry. What does he do to her? Well, he imprisons her, and basically for the whole race, she'd been imprisoned by John since 1202 at Corfe Castle, which we remember was where Edward the Martyr had been killed, Saxons, many years ago. Uh, Kept as a state prisoner, always under close guard, never allowed to marry, though she was allowed to move about between residents and lived in pretty decent comfort. So she's imprisoned by then also by by John, but then kept there by Henry the Third. Like a battery hen, poor yeah. Um, she was exhibited annually to the public just to prove that she hadn't been murdered. <laughs> and then she died in 1241. There was a rumour apparently that Henry, feeling remorseful, gave her a gold crown to wear for a day. That's very sad, it is quite sad, yeah. yeah. But she lived in pretty, you know, decent comfort, yeah. But she just couldn't do anything to make her a threat. But he doesn't kill her, yeah. Like John, I mean, that's. Like that. That's actually pretty good. <laughs> that's, actually, that's, that's not scandalous, Henry. You don't have to do better. No. Eleanor of Provence, his wife, as you said, she brings all these foreigners to court, which causes huge resentment mm. with the nobility. And in fact, no foreign queen was again allowed to bring men of rank with her to England. Really? So from now on, when a foreign queen comes over, she comes over with her ladies and retinue, but not yeah. noblemen. Yeah. Because they're a threat to the English yeah, nobles. Yeah. Also, she was very unpopular. She was mobbed by Londoners at one point. She was attempting to flee. Londoners hate the Queens, don't oh, they? Oh, really do, yeah. Misogynists. <laughs> yeah. Um, she was trying to flee the tower, ride to Prince Edward at Windsor, and she was mobbed on London Bridge and had muck and insults thrown at her. And then she gets her own back later, and she's given custody of London Bridge, and she was too stingy or vengeful to repair it. And uh, allegedly, that led to the nursery rhyme, London Bridge is falling down. Oh, I'm trying to think of the other Falling down. That's all I've got. Uh, Avarice was a quality of uh, Henry III, which didn't win him much support. On the birth of uh, Prince Edward, he demanded that people bring gifts to celebrate. And there was great rejoicing. Everyone was really happy. He's getting lots of gifts. But he rejected gifts which weren't of sufficient quality and demanded that people bring him better ones. Wow. So it was said at the time, um, God gave us this child, but the king sells him to us. That's rude. <laughs> yeah. And, as is family tradition, a bit of anti-Semitism. Yeah, they, they do have this. This is the only weakness in Eric, um, Eric? in um, <laughs> Edward's otherwise glittering mm. crown. So Jews are forced to wear a special badge of shame, are the two tablets, which, again, yeah. a bit of a sort of 20th century... Horrible echo. Echo. However, he does the usual thing of extracting taxes from them to pay mm. for his campaigns. And as a result, although he's rather nasty to them, he also sort of protects them to make sure nobody kills them so that they can continue to pay his taxes for him. That's just like Hitler. Publicly saying <laughs> how much he hates them and then pri- privately going, it's alright, it's alright, it's alright. Just give me your uh, money. Yeah. 
Um, however, I mean, this is as good as we've got to go on. So he's actually he's a very faithful husband and father, loves um, Eleanor, apparently asked for a £20,000 dowry, but quite happily took 1000 Very devoted couple, uh, never unfaithful to her, indulges Edward in all of his ambitions, tries to get the best for Edmund when he tried, tried mm. to make well, him that's, king Well, that, that's scandal, I'd say. Well, you could say a scandal yeah, if you like, yeah. Paying all that money. Mm. Yeah. He's just, he's like the shadow in all this that's going on. He's always there. Yeah. He's always, he always takes it as his own credit. But yeah, so we, again, we haven't got an awful lot there for quite, scandal. I mean, the anti-Semitism is probably the biggest thing we've got to go on there. But it's not on the same it's level as uh, his son. No. As we'll see next time. Um, I think it's another low one. I think I'm going to give him another three, I think. It's not, he's not a scandalous reign. I don't think he really wanted to be king of Monas. I think he'd be much happier being a monk or something, just having a little sit down. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've I can't see that there's three there. Two, two, no, two. That's a mere five for scandal. Struggling, Henry. Subjectivity. So, would we want to be a subject of Henry? Uh, sure. No. no. <laughs> well, there's a lot of negative points. There are major reforms in this reign. We've got Magna Carta again being sort of put forward. We've got parliamentary democracy, huge step forward, very, very forward thinking. Mm. But obviously, as you'd expect, to be fair, Henry opposes it, fights it, and ultimately undoes it. Mm. And it can't be... He, if he's not actively pursuing it, it just happens in his reign. Yeah, and it's if not, he actively opposes yeah, it, yeah. it's even worse. He's, so we can't credit him. can't credit him. For no, that's Simon de Montfort who deserves credit there. If we yeah. could do a sort of amalgam, William the Marshal... Uh, for battliness, Simon de Montfort for subjectivity. It'd be amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Second Baron's War, after the success of the minority, where royal power had been re-established, he then leads us back into another civil war, and apparently something like 15,000 men were thought to have been killed in this war. Yeah, it's big, big, big potatoes we're talking about. And here. it's not really what you want to happen when you have your king come in. You'd rather he just ruled nice, peacefully. Prosperity, builds up towns like... Do- Arthur. Yeah, wars take place in other countries. Yeah. Yeah. And as uh, his personality is often being disparaged, he's often dismissed as being simple. Um, So Dante uh, included him um, in the, what's it called, Divine Comedy, um, where he was the simple king who sat apart. That's a really good description. Very good description, yeah. The provisions of Oxford, it was essentially a return to the arrangements under the minority. So in a way they were treating Henry III like a child. So he kind of got a bit of a reputation for being this rather simple figure who was being controlled by everybody else. And he was also mocked by a court jester who said that he was just like uh, Jesus Christ. And Henry III, who very religious, was like, oh, why is that then? And he says, because, like our Lord, um, when you you are as wise now as when you were a child. Which Uh, is positive about Jesus, but Henry, he's saying, you're an idiot. Yeah, reputation for being a simple child. However, there's some good stuff. We need to give him some credit here. This is the best that he's going to get from us. His personality, as you said, he prefers the quiet life. Yeah. He likes to sit. Unlike John, who likes to travel, going all over the place everywhere, Henry just wants to be. Just wants to be. Just wants to be. Leave me alone. He'd be better as the third-born son and then he'd be (laughs) all right. Um, He had more open, accessible personality, often moved to tears. He did get cross sometimes, but... Always very easily pacified. And he was quite kind and he was merciful. Which is, you know, a nice quality. Yeah. I mean, these are personal qualities. And unless they're, and sometimes, you know, that's reflected in mm. their policies and it, it, it 
makes for a nice place to live, which is this subjectivity bit about. But really, this niceness is almost breeding arrogance that he thinks he deserves <laughs> these yeah. good presents. He deserves to rule and is willing to kill subjects in order to. Mm. I don't know. Charitable. 1240, apparently he's fed 500 paupers a day. Uh, gave provisions for orphans, charitable donations to religious houses. And he has a strong family life. We've said before about someone like Henry II, who didn't yeah. have very good fathering skills. In contrast, their daughters frequently visit their parents, even after, after they're married. Edward, although he briefly sided with Simon de Montfort very early in the uh, yeah. process, he largely stays loyal and ultimately is the family's saviour. Edmund is always a very loyal supporter of the family and of his brother, never intrigues against him like so many other brothers mm. do, i.e. John. So, you know, he's got a strong family mm. built up there, which is good. He has a menagerie. Oh, oh wow. Tower of London housed... Oh, that's, yes, I remember this. Mm, wild and exotic animals. 1254, a gift from Louis IX, he got an elephant. That would be impressive, wouldn't it? First ever elephant in uh, London. Sadly, it dies in 1258 after receiving an excessive red wine. I was going to say, they wouldn't know what it ate. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> they didn't really know what they were doing with it. And incredibly, I find this amazing, a gift from Harkon the Fourth of Norway, a polar bear. That is very cool. Medieval period. What did they England feed that one? Polar bear. Again, I don't know. I guess they, well, I guess they just gave it meat. Yeah. Um, How much red wine would you have to give an elephant? <laughs> well, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> And apparently the polar bear used to swim in the Thames on the end of the rope to the amazement of onlookers. Yeah, bloody right. And the public were allowed to come along free and have a look if they gave a dog or a cat to be fed to the lions. <laughs> oh, that's grim. So we have a zoo. <laughs> Probably not a very pleasant zoo. No, you've got a drunk ho- ho- horse? Elephant. elephant. A swimming polar bear. And didn't he have lions in... Uh, in? I seem to remember this. We're going around the Tower of London... He kept lions uh, in the dry moat. Quite possibly, yeah. Mm. Probably no, not very well housed either. No. Who's feeding them buns? Some better stuff, away from uh, animal mistreatment. He was a very, very, very pious man. Um, his journey is apparently often delayed by his insistence on hearing Mass several times a day. So we have sort of echoes there, if you remember, way back with Alfred the Great when he was mm. fighting with his older brother against the Vikings. And he had to fight alone because his brother wouldn't go out until he'd heard mass. Yeah. A little bit uh, yeah. remembrance of that. And apparently Louis the Ninth banned priests from Henry's journey to come and visit him because he took so long. <laughs> because of all the mass just and all the visiting the teachers. So he just banned priests <laughs> so that he couldn't see them. And <coughs> particularly for Henry here, he venerates Edward the Confessor. Uh, so we've gone yeah. kind of a little bit full circle yeah. here, back to where we were before. Now a venerated English saint, particularly beloved of Henry... Like Edward, he dresses in an austere manner, has a mural of Edward painted in his bedchamber so he can be inspired when he goes to bed and wakes up in the morning. Mm. And then he has his bones and relics transferred to a new magnificent shrine at Westminster Abbey in 1269, which is still there, and it's a huge, huge, yeah. huge shrine. And he also rediscovers Edward's crown, which means that Henry III, weirdly, is then the last king not to be crowned with St. Edward's crown. Sorry, he's the last king not to be crowned as St. Edward's crown. Because he, he finds it when they are transferring the relics and the bones. Yeah. So he discovers this old crown of Edward. All oh, right. So then every king after him mm. is crowned with... Edward's one. Edward's one. Oh, right. But Henry's already crowned. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he missed his chance. And John bloody lost a lot. And he? John lost a lot, yeah. <clears throat> and of course he names, his ch- he names Edward after Edward's confessor, yeah. his son. Mm. His main thing is his cultural patronage, in particular... 
architecture, but it's his sort of main concern in his final years. And he really is responsible for bringing the European Gothic architectural style to England. So massive renovation of Westminster Abbey, Salisbury Cathedral is another one. He brings this style over. And he also does a lot more of sort of arts patronage, lots of things that he brings over from the continent to a country that wasn't really very interested in it at the time. Mm. And Antonio Fraser said that perhaps we give too much glory to our martial kings and too little to those like Henry III who have made England a more civilised country. I doubt if you were in the Civil War at the time they <laughs> yeah. said that. I don't think they'd have agreed. That's true. So he does, he's some nice elements. As you said, he probably wasn't really a man made to be king. No. He'd have been happy if he wasn't. On the other hand, we shouldn't dismiss him as this unworldly simpleton because as we've seen, 1236-58, he was ruling by himself, doing all his own things and his big projects. He's not a simple um, man of the church. He is... You know, he's ruling yeah. the state. I think he's got... A, but I do think they... I know what they mean by the simple thing, because it seems that he's got a very simple um, outlook on life, mixed with what I see as this arrogance, where he just sees this divine right to mm. rule and just can't understand why everyone does it. Oh, <laughs> I'm a lovely person. I'll, I'll wait a war. Would you he's like just, to see my zoo? <laughs> yeah. Have a look at my polar bear. Where's your dog? <laughs> I Yeah, it's just... It is too removed, too arrogant and... Rubbish. I mean, at the end, there's a bit of patronage there, but there's a civil war. The civil war, but you know, we've got all that cosmic architecture. We've got a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Venerating Edward the Confessor. Oh, yeah. What are you going to give him? Uh, two. I mean, if we're subjectivity, opposed parliamentary reforms, civil war. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. Two, because one for the polar bear. The other for the um, drunk elephant. <laughs> That's it. That's all he's getting from me. I'm... Ooh, see, I, I feel like he deserves something. As I said, he deserves something for not being a completely awful person and having some good qualities and doing mm. some nice... He's got a real architectural legacy. It's quite a big legacy, probably, that he leaves there. But on the other hand, you wouldn't want to be a subject to him. No, it would have been a bad wouldn't. time to have been um, yeah. subject to a king. I'm, I'm going to give him... I'm still going to give him a four, okay. I think. Credit okay. to the architectural stuff, so that's a total of six for it's subjectivity. Not good. But he's still struggling, he's still struggling. Mm. Longevity. This is where we do our mockery of the scoring system. Because Henry rules from 1216 to 1272. He is king for 56 years. And ha- that must have been an awful time. 50, <laughs> you'd think he's going to go soon. And, it's an incredible, and that's incredible to say. I mean, he's the fourth longest reigning monarch ever. Really? Ever. And the longest one we've had so far on Rex Factor. That is that is actually a jolly long time. Is it? 56 years. Is, yeah. What's the Queen on at the moment? She's about... She's nearly 56. Uh, she's... 53 f- to 2011. Quick maths. <laughs> or 58. Wow. That's still pretty impressive. Yeah, very impressive. So, I mean, that's an impressive thing, the fact that for all of his failings... In effect, still two civil wars, an invasion with it when he was a minority, yeah. losing power to De Montfort, England almost becoming a republic, pretty much. Yeah. And yet, he rules for 56 years. And dies quietly. And dies quietly in complete control. With a secure succession. Yeah. That is, that is pretty impressive, actually. <laughs> it's a credit for yeah. to being so awful and yet somehow coming out. But that's it, he's just slippery. For all his wanting to sit quietly and simple outlook on life, he's a bit... 
sly, maybe. Mm. And he does he does make the right moves at the right time, giving up France. So, I mean, that's how you do it. Yeah. Anyway, we've got one more before the final one. Dynasty, not the programme. He has four surviving children, two sons, two daughters. That's good. So that's a four for Dynasty and a total of 77 points. Oh, I don't believe that it. Has only, that is the third highest score uh, that we've ever had. But it. as you said, that's the problem, the longevity. Yeah. Rather well, there we go. makes a mockery of our system. Yeah. We still need that complex mathematical form. And if you can think of one, let us know. Well, that's much like the game that sounds a lot like... Bop bumps. Bop bumps. Yeah, it works. Because weak king, but, you know, if you play there... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, that's Henry III. He's got a huge score, despite uh, being rubbish in almost every <laughs> factor. But we've now got one final factor to decide. Does he have that star quality, the legacy, the great achievement that deserves him to have the title of... Rex Factor! Almost certainly not. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm upset by this. I thought... Well, I I knew that he wasn't that great, but again, this really when you see it all laid bare mm. and you go through it um, topic by topic, it's really bad. And there's so much great, interesting stuff that happens. Oh, great rain, yeah. And some really successful things that happen. Yeah. But as you said, everything successful is because of somebody else, mm. and everything disastrous, yeah, is because of Henry. I'm going to say it again, but if you were watching the film with this, mm-hmm. whenever a scene with this chap came on, you'd be like, oh. <laughs> you'd be waiting for William the Marshal or Edward I to come along. He'd just be sort of being a bit rubbish in the corner. If anyone's preparing to go into battle and then Henry comes, oh, shall I? Uh, no, no, just, no. You jump a little, sit this one out. Yeah. <laughs> come do something that building. Yeah. It looks a bit rackety. Yeah. Like it's time for mass. <laughs> yeah, so, no, hopeless. Yeah, so all he's really got is the fact that he survives. Yeah, for such a long period, and yeah. somehow comes out on top. Otherwise, which is to his credit, because he does. I mean, it, it means he's, as you say, he knows to have the right people around, and he makes makes the right decisions, but they just don't reflect him very well. I don't think. No, he he doesn't really deserve much credit for any of the successes. No. So, yes or no? Does he have the Rex Factor? No, absolutely not. No for me as well. So that's a no for Henry the Third. He does not have the Rex Factor, and that's it for him. Bad luck, Henry. Bad luck, Henry. But that means that next week we are going to do Edward the First. Excellent. Which Ali has been waiting for for the entire time. Yeah, well, if he doesn't win overall Rex Factor, I will leave my socks. <laughs> what would you do if I said no next week? You would, think, but you wouldn't be able to because <laughs> you, he's an absolute legend. Well, we'll find out next time. Is Edward the First the legend that Ali makes him out? Tune in next time. Cheerio.